0: In 1968, CBS News broadcast an hour-long documentary, Hunger in America. Imagine the voice of a 30-something Charles Kuralt. As you see his face appear on the speckled TV screen, he says, Food is the most basic of all human needs. Man can manage to live without shelter, without clothing, even without love. Poverty, unpleasant as it is, is unbearable. But man can't remain alive without food. Gravy, our show name, implies excess, as in rivulets of sausage gravy drenching high-crowned buttermilk biscuits. But Gravy, the podcast, does not always focus on food as pleasure. For this episode, we focus on malnutrition, on hunger, and on innovative programs first conceived in the 1960s, programs that were so bold, so precedent-setting, they seem visionary, even today. Hunger in America, the TV documentary, aired when malnutrition was an epidemic in the South. Much progress on human rights had been recently made in the region. With the Civil Rights Act of 1964, black citizens had gained equal access to public places, including white-owned restaurants. Later that same year, Congress passed and President Lyndon Johnson signed into law the Economic Opportunity Act, part of what he had declared a war on poverty. And yet, with these new laws, with all this momentum, how was it that thousands of Americans didn't have enough food to eat? In the wealthiest nation in the world. This is the story of a renegade group of doctors in the Mississippi Delta who conceived a bold solution to hunger, using their prescription pads and their diagnostic manuals and their wits. You're listening to Gravy.
1: Gravy. 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 Gravy.
0: Stories of a changing American South through the foods we eat. We are a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. I'm Sarah Reynolds. In the summer of 1964, hundreds of civil rights workers traveled south to Mississippi to help register African Americans to vote. The effort was called Freedom Summer and focused in part on Mississippi. Along with teachers and students, doctors and medical students traveled south too. They had signed on to patch up civil rights workers who were beaten or assaulted. And they faced more than white mob violence. They faced resistance, even from members of their own profession. Many southern hospitals were still segregated. The American Medical Association had been allowing southern affiliates to refuse membership to black doctors. Against these odds, many of these doctors and medical professionals joined together to call themselves the Medical Committee for Human Rights. They were black and white, southern-born and northern, In Mississippi, especially in the Mississippi Delta, they discovered wrenching poverty, poverty that left people without enough to eat. Dr. Jack Geiger was one of these doctors.
1: What we saw that was uh, most acute was infants, uh, a month old, six weeks old, two to three months old. And the typical child in this situation would, first of all, weigh less than he or she had weighed at birth. Uh, Secondly, was so wasted, I guess is the best descriptive word, that his skin uh, hung in flaps from his arms and legs. Uh, The babies had gotten infected from drinking contaminated water uh, out of drainage ditches because people had no secure water supply and because their mothers uh, were also malnourished. Uh, there hadn't been that much in the way of breast milk. They were so weak as to be moribund, fancy for at the edge of death. And when they cried, they were too dry even to produce tears.
0: Children were dying of malnutrition. In 1960, the black infant mortality rate in Mississippi was astronomical. More than 50 African-American babies out of every 1,000 who were born alive died before they reached the age of one. And these counts were likely low, as many births and deaths went unreported. The infant mortality rates were highest in the Delta.
2: As these physicians are, you know, traveling throughout rural Mississippi, rural Alabama, um, seeing uh, the conditions that regular african americans were living in they got incredibly frustrated in, in part saying well what are we doing fighting for voting rights and other things like this when people don't have enough to eat when people don't have basic health care when they don't have basic housing geiger worked the government system to affect change in the
0: south the economic opportunity act which began with jfk and was pushed through Congress by Johnson in 1964, committed nearly a billion dollars to a wide variety of programs, all intended to improve the lives of America's poor. The Medical Committee for Human Rights saw a possibility to use some of that funding to address the hunger they'd seen in Mississippi. Dr. Geiger and his colleague Dr. Count Gibson of Tufts University wrote a grant proposal to fund two community health centers. One would be urban in a Boston housing project called Columbia Point the other rural, in the Mississippi Delta. Both would use a community-centered healthcare approach Geiger had learned back in medical school on a fellowship in apartheid South Africa. He witnessed this level of hunger there as well.
1: Part of the difficulty for physicians in general in this country, but for lots of other people, was that, of course, they had no grasp of what the realities of daily life were like in extreme poverty or probably even... That it existed.
0: Jack Geiger was born in 1926 and grew up middle class in New York City, a white boy of some privilege. He didn't have firsthand knowledge of poverty, but he did grow up aware of civil rights, attuned. Geiger was just 14 when he went to see the Broadway play Native Son, based on the novel by Richard Wright, who was born in Natchez, Mississippi. Geiger was so moved by the story that he talked his way backstage to meet the lead, Canada Lee one of the most famous black actors of the time. Lee was taken with the precocious young man, and they became friends. The young Geiger would visit Lee in Harlem, and even lived with him for a while, as he had a strained relationship with his parents. Lee was part of the black artistic and political elite. So in Lee's company, Geiger was surrounded by the likes of Langston Hughes, Paul Robeson, and Duke Ellington. And here's where Geiger's passion for racial justice grew strong. Eventually, Geiger left New York for journalism school in Wisconsin. He served a stint in the Merchant Marine, and then started the pre-med program at the University of Chicago. At the time, the university's medical school didn't accept black students, and Geiger helped lead a fight to change this. The American Medical Association took note. When Geiger applied for med school, he realized he'd been blackballed. Not until four years later, in 1954, at age 29, was he admitted to what is now Case Western Medical School in Cleveland, Ohio. And while he was there, he had an epiphany that reordered how he thought about medicine.
1: In the second year, I was standing on the steps of the medical school, uh, beyond which you could see the teaching hospital, our universe, beyond which you could see the city of Cleveland. And it occurred to me that out there in Cleveland, who got sick? and who didn't, and what they got sick with, and why they were sick, and what happened to them subsequently, and what was the nature of their interaction with the healthcare system, were all not just biological phenomena, biomedical phenomena, they were social, racial, economic, and political phenomena. And it occurred to me is that I could fuse these two parts of my life and try to figure out how you could use medicine as an instrument of social change.
0: Geiger and his colleagues set up the Mississippi Delta Health Center at a pivotal time. Recent economic, cultural, and industrial changes had led to the state of hunger that existed there, long before it was discovered by Geiger. To understand what he walked into, we need to review a little history, and maybe crack open that old Econ 101 book too. Federal responses to poverty began during the Great Depression. The Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1935 authorized the U.S. Department of Agriculture, the USDA, to buy surplus commodities from farmers. The purpose was to regulate prices, but also to use this food to initiate school lunch programs and to provide for the hungry. It's how the U.S. fed the poor for decades. In 1964, the new food stamp program which had been piloted, replaced the surplus commodities program. Now people could choose the food they wanted to buy at a local store instead of having whatever farm surplus food was available. But the food surplus program was free. Food stamps cost money up front, and you had to travel to a county office to purchase them. So if a family had little or no income to buy stamps,
2: they couldn't buy food. People were starving. It's like a lot of programs, both in the Great Society and in the New Deal. They weren't designed to harm people. (laughs) But part of it is the the people that are making a lot of these programs were in essence so... it's, It's harsh to say they were so out of touch, but many of them had no concept of how poor people were.
0: Now comes that lesson in economics. By the early 1960s, many farmers were investing in the newly invented mechanical cotton picker. So fewer workers were needed to pick and chop cotton sharecropper and tenant farmers became expendable. If they weren't kicked off the land they once worked, their hours were severely cut. And as a result, in places like the Mississippi Delta, black families especially went deeper into debt and children went hungry. Dr. Geiger knew that he needed more than just the community health center to address the needs of the poor in Mississippi. So he hired John Hatch to help lay the groundwork and muster support. Hatch was born and raised in Kentucky, so he knew the rural South, and he knew poverty. When he heard about the Community Health Center project, he knew he wanted the job. In 1965, he and his family moved down from Boston, where he'd been working, to the Mississippi Delta to found the clinic. And he found a different place than the one he'd left behind. It was an economic system in disarray, a system that was starving the people of the Delta.
3: I found this new dimension a pressure, not just out of the economic, you know, condition of people, but actively, plantation owners were saying, we, "We really don't need you." Go with the displacement of the vast need for human labor. Things sort of fell apart when the health center began to see its first patients. There was realization that. Many of the conditions that brought people in were nutritionally related. Children were not thriving in ways that one expected. Food was simple, perhaps not ever ideal, but it was there. And uh, we came, at least for me, back to a situation where really poor people had less access to food.
0: Food access, that's a term we often hear today. Access was an issue then, too. This new food stamp program was supposed to help, but when it started, it was administered through local governments. In Mississippi, that meant the white power structure controlled and restricted food access for the black underclass. These are the kinds of things Hatch saw happening in Bolivar County with surplus food, and he said this kind of discrimination continued with food stamps.
3: Say a black woman who might go in, say, you know, I, Got four kids and no job. And they would say, okay, uh, we'll try to help you. But uh, Miss Alice Brown, you know, two miles down Highway 14, her husband is sick and she's getting old. And if you could go out and uh, help her for two or three days, We'll see what we can do to help you to feed your children. The administrator of Surplus Food, who was a white woman working for the county, was using local food to secure labor for another white family that was experiencing some stresses. They were using government food to get, black women to work in white folks' houses. Obviously, a uh, gross misuse of food and relationships, but those were the circumstances at that time.
0: Tom Ward says, if you were involved in the Freedom Movement or the Head Start program, which provided early childhood nutrition and education to impoverished families, there were often repercussions. Some families were denied food stamps altogether.
2: In the wake of the civil rights movement, uh, you still had a a, a white government, an all-white government uh, on the the state level, and there was a lot of animosity, (laughs) and you had a situation where uh, the government basically did not give people uh, access to the food stamps that they should have. And especially if they had been involved in things like the movement. It was used as a punishment. So you had people, for either political reasons or, or just economic reasons, that were seeing less food uh, by the, the late 60s than they had seen before.
0: The on-the-ground leaders in the early days of the project were Dr. Jack Geiger, John Hatch, and L.C. Dorsey. Dorsey had also been active in the civil rights movement right at home in Mississippi. She was born in Washington County in 1938, the daughter of sharecroppers. All three of them realized they would have to take extraordinary steps to meet the needs of the poor and the hungry. Two years after the Urban Health Center in Boston opened, its rural counterpart, their tough Delta Health Center, opened in 1967 in Mound Bayou, an historically black town in Bolivar County, Mississippi. Coming up, how this new model for healthcare creatively addressed the profound hunger in Mississippi, and how a doctor's epiphany led to a new sort of prescription for malnutrition. That's our donor music. Blue Smoke is a New York City restaurant with a decidedly southern menu. Chef Jean-Paul Bourgeois from Thibodeau, Louisiana, works with his staff to serve smoked prime rib, pulled pork, Candied lamb bacon, collard greens, potato salad, and buttermilk biscuits. Yes, you hear that right. Candied lamb bacon. And for those who find this wintry Arctic weather too cold for going out, Blue Smoke delivers. That's right. If you're in Manhattan, go online to bluesmoke.com and place an order for delivery. For that convenience and Blue Smoke's support of this podcast, we thank them. And now, back to our story. By 1970, the Tufts Delta Health Center thrived. Here's a young Jack Geiger speaking of the promise from a documentary recorded that very year.
1: What kind of a place are we? Uh, I think we're a place that has as its primary thesis that the determinants of health are in the social order, not in health care. I've never seen any use in what I call the Schweitzer bit, which is the idea that you stand around in whatever circumstances, laying hands on people in the traditional medical way, waiting until they're sick, curing them, and then sending them back unchanged and into an environment that overwhelmingly determines that they're going to get sick. We think there's a better way to do it by using health services as a route of entry for these other kinds of social change.
0: This was a new idea for addressing health care needs. Geiger and his team considered no health issue in isolation. A history of slavery and racism had led to sharecropping and years of servitude and debt. Federal food programs tamped some poverty down, but shifts in these programs, as well as the industrialization of cotton, destabilized local economies, leaving the most destitute even more hungry. And hunger, it affects both physical and mental health. Children studying would be unable to concentrate after not eating all day. With no food, there's no energy to work or do anything, and sometimes the results of hunger are irreversible. Malnutrition can be fatal for young children, and especially for infants. Hunger for an infant could even cause long-term underdevelopment, physically and mentally. The body begins to shut down if it's had no food for an extended period of time. These long-term effects are not just devastating in the immediate, but they can affect the ability of a person to succeed in the world. Poor families raised poor children who received poor educations, and when they entered the workforce, they got poor jobs and lived in poor housing. Dr. Geiger recognized that any treatment he offered would have to be holistic. Treating poor people for illness required responding to all aspects of their lives. It required recognizing malnutrition as an illness. The health center team worked with the community to dig wells and privies for toilets. They focused on education and nutrition.
1: Food, housing, clothing, shoes for kids, shelter, clean water, adequate sanitation. Uh, that's what was determining the health status of that population, and making people uh, sick and endangered.
0: While Geiger worked to establish the clinic, John Hatch was getting to know the people of Bolivar County, sharing news about the grant they'd received and the plans they imagined. He remembers stopping at one church to speak to a room full of people and hearing from a woman whose words challenged his team to hone their focus.
3: I can remember enthusiastically saying the things that we hoped and dreamed would be possible through the health clinic. And an older woman got up and say, uh, you know, we thank you and the government and Tufts University for thinking about us because it's been a long time since anybody did. But, uh, and we got a lot of sickness. Say, but you know, I think some of this sickness is related to the fact that we're just not eating as well as we used to.
0: Food, the most basic of human needs.
3: And then she wanted to explain how now the government's even cracking down on uh, illegal deer hunting. And that had been a way of uh, living. You know, you get some squirrel, you shoot a deer, and so forth. But the major point the sister was making was, don't you think food is related to health? And we were a little embarrassed, you know, because that had not been a major focus.
0: In Bolivar County in 1964, 56 out of every 1,000 black babies born alive died before the age of one. That's more than double the infant mortality rate of white infants at the time. Much of this suffering was due directly to malnutrition and starvation. Unlike an illness that scientists were still puzzling over, the cure for this illness was clear. Food, sustenance, cornbread, collards, peas.
1: We knew there had to be some other kind of answer uh, to this uh, dreary cycle. And that says nothing about the problems that the adults themselves had Uh, not so much with uh, overt malnutrition as with hunger. And we need to distinguish them because hunger is a reality uh, that sets in well before uh, people uh, reach the level of evident or visible malnutrition.
0: With the clinic doors now open, Dr. Geiger treated malnutrition on a daily basis, particularly in babies. To address the ills, he and his team decided to apply a novel treatment. They began to prescribe food, prescriptions for milk, for meat, for vegetables.
1: When there was this kind of crisis in a family, usually with a sick infant, but we also knew with two or three other children, uh, very often in the family, likely with marginal malnutrition, and we knew that no mother was going to feed if we provided for just the one child uh, and let the others sit there and watch that was an impossibility so we decided whenever we saw this kind of crisis situation we would uh, write prescriptions for food for all of the children uh, the mother as well for Usually a period of two weeks, the duration of the acute illness.
0: Geiger made this happen by tapping the pharmacy budget in his federal grant. The health center made arrangements with local grocery stores to fill these prescriptions and then to build a clinic. Written on doctor prescription notepads, just like any doctor would do for a drug. Prescriptions for food.
1: We would write these prescriptions, so much meat, so much food, so much vegetables, and uh, Milk and fruits and the like, and turn them into, in effect, uh, substantial grocery orders.
2: Here's Tom Ward. The food prescription program, the the great impact it had. Obviously, it had it had an impact on on the individuals that it helped, but it had an impact on um, the the funders in Washington, saying this is a crisis we had not really considered, and we need to do something. We need to do something about it
0: the Office of Economic Opportunity, the OEO, Geiger's grant provider, eventually called to ask why the heck they were giving away food.
1: And he said, well, because a pharmacy is for drugs for the treatment of disease. And I said, the last time I looked in our medical text, the most specific therapy for malnutrition was food. And he went away because he couldn't think of anything coherent to say in answer to that.
0: These food prescriptions addressed hunger for the short term. But Geiger and his colleagues wanted to
2: affect long-term change. The problem was food prescriptions were, were kind of a stopgap. And one of the things that Geiger was really interested in, this came out of his time in South Africa, uh, was he was concerned with what he called the social determinants of health, that instead of curing people on the back end when they're already sick, try to figure out the problems that cause people to be sick and start. Stop, you know, nip them in the bud. Again, John Hatch.
3: We began to try to respond to it in ways that we thought would be enabling, not creating dependencies and certainly not using government food or any food in ways that would uh, continue the patterns of oppression that we saw there.
0: With these big picture needs in mind, they asked, how could they help the people of the Delta grow their own food? Long before community gardens became vogue in the 21st century South, activists in 1960s Mississippi saw the possibilities.
3: You know, here are people who have been working the land for over 100 years. They knew how to hoe, to plant. Many of them had experience growing some of their food. But now that you're no longer needed on the plantation, and perhaps you're living in town, there's no place to plant. You no longer have easy access to the stuff growing up uh, in the woods along the countryside.
0: Ultimately, Hatch says, there had been a massive disruption of the informal and formal systems that had been in place for many years, how people fed themselves and how they survived. Something sustainable needed to be done to rebuild this confidence and ownership around food. Something to put control back in the hands of the poor by using the skills they already had. Farm cooperatives had been attempted in the South before. And Geiger and Hatch thought something like this just might work.
3: And the co-op was the result of regrouping and trying to enable people to again through whatever means we could identify, have control of of their food and wouldn't have to be beholden to anybody to eat.
0: The idea started out as a community garden to grow food on the land instead of cotton. But when they suggested it to the community, they had an overwhelming response.
1: We thought maybe 50 or 70 families might raise their hands. And what happened was 1,000 families raised their hands. And then we said, wait a minute, we are talking about uh, a different scale and a different opportunity.
0: A farm cooperative seemed an ideal solution. So they started hunting for resources. The North Bolivar County Cooperative inspired contributions. One black farmer donated 10 acres near Mount Bayou. Others donated tools and seeds. Hatch's cousin, a professor of agriculture, came from the University of Iowa to help advise. Even the Stovall Plantation in neighboring Cahoma County donated potato plants and a potato planter. Private donations came in from big companies like Coca-Cola and Green Giant. The Ford Foundation bought in. So did the OEO. It seemed headed for success.
1: And so we started with the first 50 acres or so and then 100 And then as things evolved, uh, we went on with this funding to 500 acres of a irrigated, triple-cropped vegetable farm with more than 1,000 owner participants is the way I would put it, people who work for this modest hourly wage and shares in the crop. And we grew okra, mustard greens, collard greens, squash, uh cucumbers uh every kind of potato all kinds of peas and lima beans field peas beans corn
3: squash (laughs) foods that were popular as well as making some decisions based on nutritional needs of the population and we also grew some crops for market so that we could provide some money to people for for working in the fields and selling the crop.
0: And it was working. With the food prescriptions, the cooperative farm, and two years of health center operation behind them, the black infant mortality rate in Bolivar County had dropped 50% by 1970. The doctors, nurses, and nutritionists at the health center were seeing improvement in diet and in the health of many of their patients, white and black. By the spring of 1968, they had 128 acres of land and over 500 families signed up. At first, members were families with less than $1,000 yearly income. They paid a fee of $1 a year and worked the fields to earn cash and food credits. By the end of 1969, the cooperative spun off its operation from the health center. Former day laborers and sharecroppers from throughout the county were running the cooperative. As it grew, the members began to use a food locker to freeze their surplus and sell it. They even attempted to build a cannery to handle the surplus. But once Nixon was elected, many of the war on poverty projects around the country saw reduced or eliminated funding. In 1972, the OEO grants to the farm co-op ended. Without these funds, the farm floundered. They needed to figure out how to earn money elsewhere. But without a cannery or a way to market their surplus harvest, this was
2: proving difficult. Here's Tom Ward. They said okay to be sustainable, now we can't just we can't just grow lima beans and things. We've got to grow some cotton. So we'll, let's grow some cotton on 100 100 acres of our 500 acres.
0: Ironically back to cotton, the very crop that had enslaved them for so many years. And with this shift, members began to lose interest.
2: That started to take some of the energy away from the people. So, wait a minute, this is about food. It's not about cotton. And so then as people go away, then they started to shift more of it over to to cotton and soybeans. And when you went to that kind of farming, you also needed um, tractors. And, of course, you need fewer people. The idea was people were out there kind of doing this work. And it kind of became a little more professional. and, And you lost a lot of that energy. Elsie Dorsey, one of the early
0: organizers of the farm co-op who died in 2013, saw something else at play here as well. The history of being enslaved
2: was a lot to overcome. She said that the people never quite, they never quite got that it was their farm, that it was a co-op. They always thought that they were working for somebody else, and they thought they were working for her. Working, And she would say, look, you all own this farm. And so, you know, I know she was frustrated, um by what, what she you know, what she used to talk about is the plantation mentality.
0: Here's Dorsey speaking to a group of farm cooperative members in nineteen seventy.
3: You know, I know the whole concept of management to black folk is a brand new bag because all our lives we've been in the workers only category. And one thing that we should keep in mind is the fact that this is not a corporation. You know, where the decision are made by the, just one people or two or three people on top, and then everybody else sort of falls in line. But in a cooperative, the decisions are made by all of the folks on the bottom, and then the people in top fall in line.
0: Farm co-op membership peaked in 1970, with over 900 families working the land. But by 1972, that number had slipped to around 500. Despite private donations from interested people from around the country, it was unable to become a self-sustaining operation. In the mid-'70s, After many attempts to rekindle membership, it was eventually turned over to Alcorn State University, an historically black college. They acquired the land and converted it into a research farm, which is how it remains today. But despite its failure to become sustainable, the success of this farm cannot be understated. In Ward's book, Dorsey is quoted saying, The pride of the people and being part of the cooperative, part of something all black and for blacks, and Black Run is tremendous, and a lot of people join just for that, she said. Today, the Tufts Delta Health Center, now called the Delta Health Center Incorporated, still cares for poor people in Bolivar County. And there are 2,900 other community health centers like this one, around the country, that grew out of this movement. They continue to address health from a needs-based perspective. Recently, food prescription programs have made a comeback, The nonprofit Wholesome Waves has developed pilot programs for food prescriptions in 10 states, including Georgia in the South. They're also currently working with 30 farmers markets across Tennessee and Mississippi, with a program that doubles the amount of produce that the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program participants can take home. That's SNAP, formerly the Food Stamp Program. The fight to provide for the hungry in the South continues. Rural hunger today is less about starvation and more about access to nutritious foods. Many rural towns that were once bustling with people and jobs are now fading, and they've become food deserts for the people that remain there. Again, Dr. Geiger.
1: One of the things about living as long as I have now, at 91, is that you begin to perceive how cyclic uh, poverty is in this country.
0: Through the cycles of poverty, the goals of the health center are still a comprehensive way to address health care, in sustainable development work and through community health centers. Here's John Hatch speaking in the late 60s about the farm co-op.
3: We found that the services we had to offer were not really aimed toward the most basic needs of the population, which was food, clothing, and shelter. And people began to ask us if we couldn't help them to get food. And did the people in Washington really understand but they didn't have anything to eat. People were asking for jobs first. And if they had jobs, they could get food. They were not really asking for relief, but rather an opportunity to earn it if at
0: all possible. Geiger and his team were able to build a framework in the 1960s to begin addressing hunger holistically, by running everything from GED classes and college prep programs to nutritional exams, writing food prescriptions, and building a farm cooperative. They were able to reduce hunger in the region, and not in a vacuum, but within the context it was all created, by considering the history of poverty in the South. You can see photos from the health center and the farm cooperative at our website, southernfoodways.org, While you're there, you'll find a link to Out in the Rural, the 20-minute film produced in 1970 about the health center. Clips were used in this story with permission from Jack Geiger. The film, Out in the Rural, was produced and directed in 1970 by Judy Shader Rogers. The book of the same name by Thomas Ward is just out from Oxford University Press. It's well worth your read, and it includes a foreword by the esteemed Dr. Jack Geiger. Additional thanks to Lori Green, associate professor of history at the University of Austin, Texas. Music for this episode is from the film Out in the Rural by the Locust Grove Choir and the Shelby Male Chorus. Music also by Blue Dot Sessions. Gravy's theme music is by Wendell Patrick, and our donor music is by Jazar. Thanks to Southern Foodways Alliance director John T. Edge for editing this episode, and to Gravy's managing editor, Sarah Camp Milam. Coming up, a taste of the next episode of Gravy. But first... If you enjoy Gravy and have considered being a part of its creative team, we've got good news. Gravy is looking for producers, smart and experienced storytellers with strong narrative abilities. Producers who can tell complex national food stories grounded in the American South. To learn more, visit southernfoodways.org. Early applicants will receive a complimentary event pass to Food Media South in Birmingham on February 25th the SFA's annual conference devoted to storytelling in the digital age. If you're interested, apply soon. If you know someone who may be interested, share our call. Or should we say, pass the gravy. Coming up on the next episode of Gravy, there was a time when very few people knew the name Vidalia.
3: And I'd walk in the door and tell them, my name's Delbert Bland, I'm from Reedsville, Georgia. You might not can understand
1: me, the way I talk. But I got something you need. These are some very, very good onions.
0: How a little Georgia onion went global. That's next time. You're listening to Gravy. I'm Sarah Reynolds for the Southern Foodways Alliance. And as you go about your day, please remember, make cornbread, not war.